Welcome to Down to Art. I'm your host, Christy Gordon, and today I'm joined by the amazing artist Patricia Watwood to talk about how she found her artistic voice and how to incorporate your imagination into your work. So Patricia is a figurative artist, and her work has been shown in the Beijing World Art Museum, the European Museum of Modern Art, and the Butler Museum, and has also been included in numerous solo and group exhibitions around the world. And she's also the first vice president of the Salome Gandhi Club in New York. So welcome, Patricia. It's so good to have you. Hi, Christy. It's really great to see you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's so good to see you again, too. Um, well, I was thinking maybe we could just start by you talking a little bit about your background and your training and how you came to be the artist that you are. Yeah. When I was growing up, I was always interested in arts-related things. I never did very sportsy things, and I never did very sciencey things. Mm -hmm. I always did lots of art-related music, and then in high school, really got into theater. And I loved the community of theater and theater production. In college, I majored in theater, and I majored in scenic design. And that seemed at the time like this perfect pairing of kind of like, because as a child, I was always drawing, you know, learning painting, doing a lot of that kind of thing um, all throughout my life. But then once I got into college, I discovered like doing theater and then design, it seemed like what I wanted to do. But then something interesting happened that changed my course, which is that I went to interview at Yale where I wanted to do my master's. And the teacher there recommended that I go to the Art Students League in New York City and study figure drawing. Well, I lived in Seattle, but that was a minor detail. So I started getting serious about finding people who taught figure drawing. And I managed to find Gary Fagan, who used to teach at the Art Students League. And he was just then sort of starting what's now Gage Academy. Oh, yeah. And so that was my introduction to like realist drawing and painting. I started getting into figure drawing and portraiture and I fell in love with it. And I never and I and I left theater and I went to art school. I moved to New York to go to New York Academy and to study with Jacob Collins. Um, the Water Street Atelier uh, was created um, about a year after I moved here, I started studying privately with Jacob, and then he created the Water Street Atelier. So, uh, yeah, so I moved to New York to study painting, and um, and I've been able to do it ever since. I, you know, do teaching, I do commission portraiture, and then do gallery work. Actually, it's interesting that you had this background in theater, because looking at your paintings, some of them have a sort of theatrical, some of your compositions actually have a little bit of a theatrical feel to them. And I feel like that can happen where our voice ends up pulling all of the things that we've done together in a certain way. I think my theater background really has shaped the, my process a lot. Um, I've And also my interest when I was in theater, I was studying the history of theater and ancient Greek theater. It's all about like myth and narrative and then archetypes and then you get to Shakespeare and you know love and struggle and death and jealousy you know all of these themes so now all of that interest in narrative and archetype and story that I learned and absorbed in theater has crossed over 
Um, and I think my process is really influenced too, because in learning scenic design and other theatrical elements, you learn about, you know, how to light a character for the psychological impact that you want or how to costume them, how to stage them so that they tell a story in a certain way. Um, and so I kind of lean on a lot of those like theater making construction sort of skills when I'm thinking about building a, a picture. Um, and I think I do kind of light them or I think about how I stay, I cast my characters, you know, to sort of embody a certain quality or role. Yeah. Um, I think all of that is very influenced by my theater background. That is so interesting. And it, I think it's comforting to us to realize too that when we've taken various routes before we end up at say painting where we know we're supposed to be, it wasn't a waste, <laughs> you know? It's still like FX our work in the end. It was- I didn't really start doing like more classical drawing and painting, you know, traditional training until I was like 23. Yeah. And I moved to New York until I was 25. And then I started being surrounded by all these people who'd started like getting really serious about painting and drawing when they were like 14. And I felt so terribly behind, but it's all sort of silly, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because then they probably wonder, oh, how do you like lighting? And it makes me curious, actually, I'm wondering, what tips do you have as far as lighting, uh, you know, a scene so that it maybe reveals the content in such a way. Yeah, so the use of like light and shadow is something I think about a lot in terms of leading the eye or getting, you know, putting emphasis on what are the the most important parts of your story. Like definitely in a scenic, um, in a production, there'll be a scene and there is one key piece of action there is one line that you absolutely need the person in the back row to hear and see, right? And then there's like other things going on and a lot. So you design the lighting or maybe like a bold slash of color or a really strong, some, some strong visual to focus you, right? So that definitely thinking about how to, to use lighting to focus somebody's eye or attention. Um, even the quality of the light, kind of like a frontal um, sunny daylight has a very specific psychological connotation, whereas like a noiry kind of backlit, lots of shadow mood, you know, gives a very, can create a really ominous feel or a really sinister feel. So just by shaping the light, the color of it, the direction of it, all of those um, can really add a lot of psychological impact to your to your image. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I think it's some like a certain aspect of, say, learning how to paint that is, it's like assumed that we might eventually figure this out, but it's never taught. <laughs> you know. I did a great exercise in theater that's kind of a classic theater training exercise where in lighting design class, you take an old master painting and then you have to recreate it. You have to like find a person to like put on and you have to make the costume and then you have to set up sort of a background somehow to evoke the the painting and like 
combine, you know, the props or whatever. What we always learn in lighting design is that you usually need two or three different lighting effects because you need one light on the primary subject and then you need a little light on this little detail back there. Mm -hmm. And so it very specifically shaped you know, that exercise was incredibly helpful for thinking about constructing paintings. That really is. And actually, it's kind of tying into what I want to talk to you a little bit about, because um, I know you and I both have like an academic training and in the in like an atelier, they would have us usually use one directional light source and paint like really observationally. So changing the color of the background would be like a big no, no, not in all schools, but just maybe when we're initially learning. Um, just so observational based and stuff. But then you and I and so many other artists have like found ways of incorporating our imagination and having our work look personal and unique to us, but drawing on this amazing tradition that we love the techniques from. Um, mm -hmm. And even the what you're talking about with the lighting, it's one of the ways that you could maybe diverge slightly from the total tradition so that now you're having multiple light sources and using that to tell the story. But I think my question that I really wanted to ask you first was what was it like, um, say you, because you initially got a little bit of academic training, then you went to the New York Academy of Art. What do you, do you remember what it was like when you first tried to bring your own ideas into a painting using these traditional techniques? Well, you know, actually, I have to say that New York Academy of Art was a really um, encouraging place to try to get me to start thinking about constructing images um, like entirely in terms of the concept and then what the setting would be. And I, I did a class with um, Ted Schmidt and um, another, another couple of classes, um, like a class with Patrick Connors who passed away now, where we were invited to create a setting and invent a setting using perspective skills or an invented landscape or an I think I remember making one painting that was like an invented like bathhouse with all these like tiles right mm -hmm. and so they really challenged us to do that and I remember actually how hard it was because we were painting the model from life and I was like drawing and painting the figure from life but then being asked to kind of construct this image around it. And I remember that the first results were sort of like awkward and like not very good, but it definitely gave me permission to figure out how I might do that. And I continued to train um, in the atelier at the same time and working observationally um, for, for many years, it was still my practice to sort of work observationally and as much as possible, even if I wanted to think about how I constructed the background, I would come up with some way to do it in my studio, you know, whether it was like drapery or even kind of like one time sewing costumes or getting, you know, like I felt like I kind of would pull things into my studio that I could observe from. Yeah. But then slowly over time, I have gotten more and more so that actually I just, I just can, I'm just going to make the background up, you know, like I, you know. Totally. But that's but it's a long time to develop a feeling of confidence around that I could just make it up and that it was okay. Because there was also such a strong um, emphasis on on realism and observation and perception as 
a value in art, and this goes back to the 19th century and even uh, realism in Courbet and then like the Ashcan school and we should be painters of modern life. There was a like complete rejection of all of this like fantasy and imagination and angels and monsters and dragons, right? And the idea of doing that, like when I first went to art school just seemed like the most ridiculous thing you could ever want to do, right? And it's been very interesting and challenging, like over time to kind of like, well, maybe I can paint a dragon if I want to. <laughs> totally. And I know exactly what you mean, because we have a really like similar kind of training in that way. And, and we're both influenced by like, you know, this tradition, but we have kind of found ourselves speaking to it, but not necessarily entirely aligned with it, all of the I definitely remember like the first time I saw one of your unicorn paintings you know and I was like okay gauntlet has been thrown down we can paint <laughs> like it just felt like permission in a certain way you know and I was definitely thinking about those kind that direction myself and so I obviously like saw it identified what you were doing right away Aww. but I've I've appreciated that about watching how your work has developed too Oh, that's so sweet. And I feel exactly the same about like as you. Um, I think that what you said is so important. It, it does eventually come down to us giving ourselves permission to do what we want. And there's a lot of the time from our amazing training, whatever, whoever, like each artist will have different people that they've trained with, but presumably they like the training that they've got and they've got some really good training. But eventually it does come to a point where you have to kind of like make the decision like, I want to do this and I'm going to do this and give yourself permission to. And so, so a lot of the time, maybe there is a moment where you're slightly turning your back on the training, but not entirely or anything. And, but that's what starts to make our voice so unique sometime. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think there's, there's so much to it. You know, I think that particularly my education and in, in my master's program, um, I've actually come to think of it as actually very masculine. Um, For sure. The kind of energy and impetus around even abstract expressionism and expressive painting. Yeah. Things like bold and muscular. Yeah. Um, things that were strong and assertive. Things that were bad were all of those characteristics of like what can be described as feminine painting, like true color yeah. decoration yeah it um, feel frivolous right and and i really see now that those are kind of all and gendered ideas about what is valued in art and not valued and so i i really also love that about what you're doing and what i'm doing more myself in terms of like well what exactly is my obligation to some sort of verisimilitude or veracity or um rigor or like there's all this language right that is kind of gendered and in fact i see more and more uh women artists who are being super creative and coloristic and emotional and decorative and playful and and i'm very interested in in all of that energy that's I feel exactly the same but actually I don't think I'd put it like so clearly in some of the ways like to look at a lot of our training as like kind of masculine and 
and then remembering this frivolous kind of colorful stuff because of course when I painted the unicorn I was thinking that's really embracing some feminine you know motif you know but that yeah that's very interesting um and we were sort of talking about lighting and I um we kind of got away with from it but I had been sort of thinking about how much that ties into composition too and I I wondered how important composition like is in your work and just how important you think the role of composition and color I think those are the two areas that almost are um so complicated that it's very hard to teach and a lot of us have to fumble around trying to figure it out on our own yeah I think there aren't actually enough um good resources about composition um we you we've talked a little bit about books I'm kind of thinking about like a book on composition um I think composition is incredibly important yeah and there's been one thing that I've learned about in the last four or five years that I've incorporated into my teaching, which is the concept of no tan. Yeah. Um, no tan is just basically reducing a composition to light and dark. Um, and then kind of going back to what I was mentioning in theater about contrast and how much contrast there is. So I've developed like, um, I guess I, I put a great deal of importance now on thinking about the composition in terms of its no tan and its readability in a very reduced way in terms of what are the shapes do they convey what the story is or the setting or the narrative and then how is the light dark pattern in the painting really making the composition strong um one thing I think I realized is that I think partly because I like a lot of color and a lot of like complementary color, yeah. oftentimes the composition in the past would be a little sort of all in the middle in terms of a value. Like if you took out all of the color, you would just see kind of a little bit of a middle gray because yeah. there's so much. And so now I'm kind of appreciating that in addition to having a really strong coloristic design, which I like, I also want to make sure that there's a really strong, like, light shadow, like, comp uh, contrast in the composition, because that actually is really important to making it read from a distance. And when your composition, like, reads from a distance, people want to walk over the room, walk across the room and look at it, right? And then also, I kind and you um, probably relate to this, too. I put a lot of little details in my paintings, but you need them to cohere. So it's like if from a great distance, you just kind of see the light shape and the dark shape, and then you get all the way up to the painting and you're like, oh, oh and there's a little thing here and a little thing here. Then you kind of get these two different levels of engagement with the picture. Oh, that's yeah. so well put. I think that's so true. It, it's like it brings an order to the picture. Yes. Um, but you're so right about how it that's what draws you across the room, like a strong composition with a lot of contrast. Yeah. yeah. Can you think of any good resources? Um, one that I find is pretty good for composition is Arthur Dow's book on composition. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that one. Yeah, and to be honest, off the top of mind, that is um, the one I can think of. I mean, when I was in school, um, I, there was also like... Um, the painter's secret geometry the and other one. learning yeah. about um, the golden ratio oh, yeah. and um, the kinds of 
intervals and harmonies that were built into Renaissance and Baroque paintings with like intervals of like threes, fours and fives. And there's parallels to like musical composition and, and musical intervals. And I loved that so much. And I think I kind of internalized a lot of it in terms of thinking of the spacing of a painting. Is it on a quarter? Is it, is it on a fifth? Is the horizon high or is it low? But I no longer sort of use any kind of system like that or the golden ratio. I tend to do it more, probably more instinctually, just thinking about um, um, those kind of dynamic intervals, diagonals, things that lead the eye, where something hits, you know? Yeah, um, those are totally the two like best books that I can think of too. And I, I may be similar to you. I initially started by actually drawing out the like golden set yeah. and like sort of imposing it on my painting, trying to figure this thing out. <laughs> and then yeah. now I, I work a little bit more intuitively with it, but it is fascinating. There was <laughs> something kind of mystically appealing to me about that that geometry, the idea that there is some sort of connecting fabric of of harmony that you can connect to on sort of a both a metaphysical and a cosmic level and a quotidian like granular level and that very appealed to me i mean i continue to kind of be interested in very spiritual things so those kinds of things that sort of imply some sort of like secret meaning to the universe always resonated with me <laughs> Oh, me too, actually. And that's actually really interesting because, you know, both of us work with themes and subjects that are somewhat mystical. And I like this idea that it could be like embedded into the composition with this mystical geometry as well. Right. <laughs> I love that. So when you first started like painting from your imagination, you mentioned um, initially kind of maybe seeing what ways you could actually create setups in your studio that could almost like I remember maybe putting a blue blanket down for the sky and a green one for the grass and just doing whatever I could that yes. is a good tip can you think of any other tips uh whether it's constructing things in your studio or tools that allow you to bring your imagination in or merge various photographs together what what kind of tools do you need uh, um I tend, so I tend to do this more analog. I don't use Photoshop. I know a lot of people do, but I just am happier and more comfortable just kind of doing things in a um, physical way in, in my space. Other things I've done, like I remember one time doing um, a painting where I wanted a pretty, almost like Maxfield Parrish-y kind of sky with kind of complex cloud forms and structures. And I hadn't spent as much time like painting landscape or inventing clouds at that time. So what I ended up doing is I printed um, like at Staples, a large poster that was like 24 by 36, six of like a photo of the of a sky that I took. So then I had this sort of big poster of the sky in the studio, right? That then I kind of painted from and I had with my um, with my subject. Um, I, yeah, that worked. Um, and I definitely also use 
people's paintings, often like old master works or 19th century, you know, like, oh, that's a good painting of a woods, you know, like, and I'll just kind of like really study and kind of copy a little bit like um, the, the painterly language from, from that, uh, like sample. Um, yeah, I love I definitely in the foreground, I try to use things more in the studio that I do have a visual reference. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's like in the background, the distance is sky and landscape and it's all kind of invented. But then in the foreground, maybe there's flowers or birds or bottles or like who knows what. And I, I often actually try to get those things in the studio. Sometimes I work from photo for specific, like a screeching bird, right? And I, yeah, like, totally. you know, I guess some people could get a topiary, but um, <laughs> I just now, so I'll in combine, you know, finding the specific image that I want, but then also have in the studio, like whether it's fabric or objects, um, things that I can kind of also observe and paint. And I there's something helpful it's just honestly it's easier and more fun sometimes to just have something to kind of look at and then extrapolate from there yeah yeah that's true I think it's um my bread my paintbrush does different strokes when I'm painting from life and so it's yes. nice I can combine that element of painting from life with some parts of using photo reference and online searches and yes yeah that's, yeah, that's right. The painting does, the, the paint does sort of come out differently somehow. It does. Um, yeah. Different colors, more confident brush strokes. It just, yeah. But that's really interesting. I can actually totally see that now that I think about it. It pulls the foreground elements forward in your work right. too and really creates a lot of depth. That's right. very interesting. So uh, like I've seen your work evolve over the years. It's always been amazing. Um, how, like, what was it like for you finding your voice? Did you know when you found it? I don't know. It's always a hard topic because I feel like we're so immersed in it that sometimes we don't know when it's happened or that it's happened. But do you have anything to say about it? <laughs> yeah, I guess I actually did have like a particular painting that I made um, that you probably know. It's that painting Pandora um, yeah. where she's like seated and it's like it's kind of um, it's an allegory about the World Trade Center as well as um, Pandora's box. And when I made that painting, that was the first time that I had so um, much departed into inventing the background and creating this kind of urban sort of dystopian sort of landscape and then propped out a lot of the things that are in the foreground of that painting with at that time, like things that I was looking at in the studio. Mm -hmm. And um, that was really a significant painting to me in terms of feeling like it is, I can um, invent the whole background. Um, I know how to, you know, I'm, I know enough to, to be able to do that and pull it off. And that also what it enabled me to do just compositionally or intellectually in terms of what I was creating in the painting. So that painting was really important in terms of um, then right around that, when I made that one, I made a handful of other paintings um, using a lot of the same kind of pictorial language. And that was a period where I really felt like I had finally figured out something that um, was very personal, was, my own pictorial world yeah. um, and my own 
painterly language. Um, totally. Cause also like in my backgrounds, it often is actually like quite painterly. Like it looks really detailed from a distance, but then if you get up close to it, it actually like, it's just kind of like a brushstroke or it's actually not very much there, which yeah. I'm really, really interested in. Yeah. And so in that period that I figured out just through trial and error and, um, <laughs> what seems like drunken bravery, although I, it's actually not <laughs> like, but sometimes you're just like have to kind of like, um, you don't quite know what you're doing and you just sort of like heedlessly throw yourself into what you're doing and just commit to the fact that you don't know what you're doing. And I feel like in that period, I, um, just was able to kind of stretch out into this space that felt like there was a lot of room for me to play. Ooh, well, I totally remember the painting Pandora and the other ones that you did around then. And, and I can see that, at, you know, how, how it was a little bit of a shift, like in your work. And, um, and it's, it's really interesting that that's also when you kind of figured out for yourself, because I think each artist has to figure out for ourselves, and it's a process, like what, um, tools we'll bring in, how we're going to supplement our imagination, or if we're going to only work observationally. So it sounds like that was when it, when you figured out your exact like process yeah. and uh, gave yourself this permission, even though it felt like you didn't know where it was going to go. Uh, it's like an important step, like, yeah, really important and like brave. <laughs> yeah. And it, it definitely over time since then, you know, and that was actually now about 10 years ago, I've yep. been able to more and more um, lean into things where I don't actually have to maybe give myself a foreground to paint or, you know, like, or gather all the details in a more rigorous sort of observational way that more and more I'm with the compositions and backgrounds just able to sort of invent. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. And yeah, well, that's kind of touching on it. Like what other ways has your like voice evolved? Because I think it can be so surprising to us as artists when we find our voice, but then we notice it's changing on us <laughs> just a little bit, like just a continuous evolution. I think in some ways it, um, well, what comes to mind is that my thoughts about what it means to be making figurative art yeah. um, and the thinking about the body um, over time have just evolved. Um, I've always been, you know, a, a woman painter, often painting the female nude, yeah. which then, especially when I first started, was just not really a cool thing to do to like paint, you know, the sort of like um, the female nude and sort of in a beautiful way. And but I've always been wanting to do that. But then as I also am aging myself or just thinking about the body, thinking about body positivity, thinking about feminism, um, and then even thinking about sexuality and gender. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of trans people in my life. Um, and so thinking a lot about all of, how all of that, like what does that mean to me as a figurative artist, right? As somebody who is, painting the body. And um, so I'm finding that is um, just develops and change as I, because we don't stay the same as people, you know, we develop and change as well. Oh, that's so true. 
Yeah. Um, and you've written a book called The Path of Drawing. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking. Okay, I'm going to show you my book. So. Oh, amazing. So it's called The Path of Drawing, Lessons for Everyday Creativity and Mindfulness. And honestly, this book was a really intrinsic part to me, um, learning how to cultivate my own voice and become more confident just in myself as I am. Um, I think all of us, frankly, struggle uh, emotionally with being an artist probably more than we really did often talk about. Um, and I went through kind of a creative period where I really didn't feel like I was thriving. Um, I didn't feel confident in my voice. I was constantly kind of struggling with feelings like that, like I wasn't quite enough, like whatever I was doing just wasn't, you know, wasn't enough. And so then I was like, and I was kind of struggling with some depression. So I, I really had to, at a certain point, kind of confront the fact that I had these emotional struggles that were um, getting in the way of my creative growth. And then um, I learned a lot that I brought into this book about how common issues of fear and anxiety and procrastination are around creativity yeah. and how we can use mindfulness uh, as a practice to just keep ourselves committed to what we're doing. Um, mindfulness is simply noticing what your thoughts and feelings are and being able to recognize that your feelings and thoughts are not necessarily like facts, right? Okay. You know, that you're experiencing your feelings and they are real and present, but they aren't necessarily a fact about who you are, or what you are. So then my emotional response to, you know, my painting, oh, this is going terribly. Oh, I hate this. Oh. Oh, this is so great, right? Like whatever that emotional response is, right? Can I kind of recognize, oh, I'm just having these feelings about what I'm what's going on, and then how do I and then how do I move forward in a healthy way? I also think that um to really grow and nurture your voice as an artist, you must stay in practice really consistently. Yeah, it is so much easier said than done. It is. It, we know that we have to practice and we have to paint and we have to spend time in our studios. And yet somehow there's just a couple things I've got to take care of before I do. And so the book is also about how you can just kind of strengthen your habits of, you know, rituals of beginning, mm. strengthening your intentions about what you're doing so that you can have a consistent practice because i think it is actually the consistent practice that's where really it's like the playground where your voice develops um and for me having the book is also kind of about using a, like a small sketchbook practice doing yeah. talked about no tans or just like watercolor sketches um even collage yeah that all not goal oriented and it's not about making art to then show to the public it's really very private and that both and that that allows space for growth um you know to really 
it's quiets your mind. You can actually kind of hear little ideas that are yep. coming, right? Or you can notice patterns over time that like, oh, I really seem to be interested in this one subject, right? You see, so you can, it's also just a really good way to learn about yourself. Um, you touched on so many important things and I think so many people will be interested in your book what's the best place for people to buy a copy of it's widely available in bookstores um, and it's published by Fiden um, at Fiden and Monticelli Studio it's available on Amazon or it's available at Fiden.com um, and it's available in a lot of art museum bookstores. My friend sent me a picture of it from the National Gallery in London. I think that was like the greatest thing I'd ever seen. I was so excited. So yeah, it's been a lot of uh, book bookstores that specialize in art also have it. Oh, well, congratulations. And I'll definitely include a link to where people can buy it in the description. And where can people learn more about you and your work? So um, at Patricia Watwood and patriciawatwood.com or IG Pat at Patricia Watwood or on Facebook. Um, my last name is, uh, my husband's last name, Scottish, and it's a little uncommon. So I'm actually very easy to Google. Ooh, excellent. Yeah. I'll include links to those in the description <laughs> as well. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Patricia. It was so interesting to talk to you. And um, yeah, I know our listeners will really enjoy hearing everything that you share. I'm really excited to talk to you, Christy. I remember when I first met you at New York Academy, I would just like, I feel like we connected right away. And then as we've both just continued to paint and work in our careers, it's been really lovely just seeing you work over there and you probably maybe have the same feeling like seeing me do my weird things over here it's like okay sometimes it just takes like one or two other people who you know are kind of like doing this thing and you're like i can you know all right you then you feel like i can do this too you're not alone somebody gets me <laughs> so i appreciate that <laughs> oh i feel exactly the same and i completely love that <laughs> yeah yeah but Oh, well, I can't wait to see you again sometime, hopefully soon. Talk Great. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Down to Art. Thank you so much for being with us.